1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, when I was growing up in junior high and high school, uh, we had actually moved from central Montana, kind of living up in the mountains. We moved to Rochester, very progressive city, uh, suburbia, and my folks had bought a nice house. It was kind of adjacent, kind of butted up to a farm field. And my dad, being in the Department of Agriculture, thought it would be a really good idea that we had a garden. And not just a little old garden, but a big one, okay? And so we, we did. And I, you got all sorts of vegetables out of this garden. Anything from lettuce, cucumbers, uh, pumpkins, radishes, you name it. We had it in our garden. Now, my dad was pretty protective of this kind of burgeoning bit of horticulture that he had there. And on, on one particular occasion, we had some rabbits that would kind of make their raids. And uh, my dad saw this as a second-story house, looking out the bathroom window, goes back to his bedroom, comes back out with his pistol and shoots at it, okay? And I'm like, whoa, okay. That may have worked in Montana. Probably does not work in suburbia, Minnesota, right? And now, it could work in Texas, and I know some of you are like, hey, what's wrong with that picture? And so he's, he's just wanted to protect his garden. And, you know, if you're going to have a healthy garden, there's things that you're going to need, so, for instance, you're going to need some mission-minded workers to work the garden. And so Dad was pretty helpful in getting the garden in. But uh, that's why he had four boys. And guess what? That was our job. And we were assigned the task of weeding and watering and, and harvesting when that eventually came. Now, sometimes uh, we would get a little off track and we'd spend more time wrestling or you know throwing things at each other. But we had a job to do. We had a mission to fulfill. We were supposed to be working in the garden instead of goofing off. Also, if you're going to have a successful garden, uh, you need good soil conditions. And southeastern Minnesota has some of the richest farmland in America. And all you do is you put some, if you can get a seed in the ground, it's probably going to grow. And then the third thing, of course, you need are fruit-bearing plants. You need plants that are going to bear a particular fruit, whether it be tomatoes or cucumbers. And, and that's kind of how it works. I'll tell you there's some parallels between a healthy, thriving garden and a healthy thriving church. And we need to understand that there are certain elements that you find in a church that thrives. Now, last week we started looking at the church at Thessalonica. We looked at all the background. We looked at the the city. I mean, this is a thoroughly Roman pagan city. And it had all sorts of issues. For instance, it had widespread sexual morality and promiscuity. That was just a way of life. That's how people lived. You had homosexuality that was completely seen as absolutely normal behavior and treated as such. You had a justice system that would sometimes fail. You had um, also a government that sometimes was influenced just by mob rule. And then, of course, you had high-level government officials like the emperor, and they actually saw themselves like gods. And then, of course, you had a culture that was already demonstrating it could be very hostile to Christianity. Sound familiar? That's first century Rome. That's the city Thessalonica. This letter is written to that city, to the people in that city. It sounds a lot like what's going on even in our American culture. And can a church really thrive in this kind of environment? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. After Paul and his team had established this fledgling little church, they eventually were run out of town. Paul eventually makes his way to Corinth. While he's there for about 18 months, he sends Timothy back, and Timothy gives a report on how this church is doing. 
have they been crushed by the persecution? Is the church gone? Well, Timothy's report was extremely encouraging. This church, far from being decimated, was thriving. And so Paul wrote a letter, probably about A.D. 51, about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul writes this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And it really, it kind of highlights what does a church really need in order to thrive? How did it happen for the Thessalonians? How could it happen for us? For me, this is something I really want to know. I'm very interested in what does it take for a church to thrive, specifically Fellowship Bible Church. And I think all of us, if you're a part of fellowship, you've got these exact same questions. What is needed? Well, these introductory verses to this letter actually spell it out. They give us great insight. First thing you're going to need if you're going to have a healthy church that's thriving is you're going to need some mission-minded workers. And you find them listed right here in this little prescript in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. God uses people. When God established the church, he didn't use angels. God uses people. And we looked at these to kind of trace a little bit of their history, first beginning with Paul. Every time you see Paul's name in Scripture, just take a minute to pause and remember this. God can change the hardest of hearts. No matter how belligerent you might be toward Christ, how far you might seem gone, the terrible things that you may have done, you are never too far to be out of God's reach. I mean, Paul went from this great persecutor of the church to one of the great ambassadors, actually becomes an apostle, an officially sent one in an official position. It just kind of reminds you, like, Sometimes you might have some relatives and you're like, they are so hardened to Christ and the gospel, there is no possibility for them to ever truly know Christ. Never think that way. Every time you see Paul, you see a guy that's been radically changed. You also see a guy by the name of Silvanus. Remember, he was not only Jewish in background, but he was a leader in the early church. He is also a Roman citizen. And so these two get teamed up, and then as they're making their way, they pick up a guy by the name of Timothy. This kid... He's maybe 18, maybe a little bit older, but he, he has such a vibrant faith. He is concerned about Christ and his people, and they pick this young guy up, and he, Paul starts mentoring into Timothy's lives, and they start functioning, and they go forth as a team. And I want you to see that. They, they live together. They worship together. They serve together. They struggled together. They went through hardship, persecution together, but they did so as a team. And even when they're writing this letter, even though Paul is the author, and you find that three different times, he refers to I, they very much see themselves as a team addressing this church in Thessalonica. When Billy Graham received the Congressional Gold Medal, when he and his wife did that February 13th in 1996, he made some really interesting statements. Our country has two medals, the highest civilian award that you could ever be re- re- receive. One is the Congressional Gold Medal. The other is the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1996, when Congress gave the Congressional Gold Medal to Billy Graham and his wife, this is what Billy Graham said. This has been a team effort from the very beginning. And then he proceeded to list a name, all of the people that he was teamed up with. We like to think like, well, Billy Graham, just this really gifted guy, and and is, gifted evangelist. But you need to know that he always functioned within a team. It was 
integral to the work that God is doing. Billy Graham's not the great one. God is the great one, and he worked through a team. And when he concluded his thank you speech, he said this, in closing, we did this together. That's how it works. I I want you to know, uh, being involved in the ministry like these guys are, sometimes it is difficult, hard work. Kind of like gardening. But friends, we're always meant to do this together. Every believer, if you're a believer in Christ, you have a role in the body of Christ. It's kind of like your body. It's made up of trillions of cells. Like anywhere from 37 up to 70 trillion cells are in your body, depending on how big you are. Those, tr- those cells, they actually work together. They're in harmony. They, they have multiple functions. They're all uh, vitally attached to the head, but they work together. That's how a church thrives. When the people in the church understand their vital connection together and they work together. In essence, we need to understand that we are better together. We are better together and that ministry is meant to be done in community. That's true if you're working with children, youth, your fellowship family, you're an elder team. We are better together. We function as a team. And when you see the healthy church like Thessalonica, how did it get started? It got started with some mission-minded workers. Let me give you another that you're going to find here in this just introduction here. If you want to see how a healthy church grows and thrives, not only do you have to have mission-minded workers, but you also have to have the good soil of knowing God. Look at verse 1. He writes, To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That word church, ecclesia, very common word. It meant those who are called out. You're called out to a particular purpose. You are a ecclesia. We translate it church. But these aren't a called out group of people to do nice things in the community or to hold certain values. They are a called out group of people who are, and I don't want you to miss this, They are, you see that preposition? They are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you place your faith in Christ, you are a part of a body. And the New Testament always presents that people who trusted Christ became a vital part of a local body. The idea, and it's very common now in American Christianity, is that your faith is personal And that's absolutely true. God doesn't save people on the group plan. But that it's also individual and that I don't really need anybody else. I can function independently. That's actually not true, at least how the scriptures present it. In the early church, if you knew Christ, you were vitally involved with a group of believers. You were part of an ecclesia, a church, those who have been called apart, set apart for a particular purpose. And I want you to see the equality between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in Him. It's very interesting. In all of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, he always emphasizes the equality of the Father and the Son. When he references God the Father, it speaks of the fact that He is the one who brings security, love, strength. He is the Almighty God the Father. And when you see the Lord Jesus Christ, that particular phrase tells us everything we need to know. He is Lord, Jesus is 
Lord, speaking that he's the sovereign one of the universe. He's the one who's redeemed us. He's bought us. He's brought us into his family. And he is worthy of all of our allegiance and worship. He's Lord. Jesus speaks of his humanity. It was actually the name given to him at his birth. He is fully God, Lord. He's the eternal Son of God. So always has always existed as the eternal God. He is now man. He's incarnate. He is fully human. He is the one that can identify with all of our weaknesses. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek translation of the word Christos it comes from Messiah. That's in Hebrew. And it means the one who is going to be the anointed one. The one marked out to pay for our sins. The unique one. He's Messiah. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the church. We are found in him. And this is the mystery. That God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit actually take up residency in the lives of those who believe. We are in the Father, Son, and the Spirit. What makes you a Christian is not that you fundamentally believe certain truths about God or about Jesus. Like, well, believe that he's God, believe that he died on the cross for sins, close again, check, 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 check. I believe those things. What makes you a Christian is that you've been fundamentally changed, that you're a new creature in Christ. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, like I talked about in Ephesians 1.13. Remember Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives where? In me. You're changed. You've been transformed by His presence. And the rich soil by which Christians and a church grows, whether you're in Waco or in India, is the rich soil of God Himself. You know, when I read about churches and Christians in other parts of the world, you know, some very difficult places. you got places where there is serious persecution going on in the church. And these people are living in poverty. And you're like, how, how do they make it? These are terrible circumstances. Losing their jobs, being persecuted. Some of them are losing their lives. Getting stuck in a prison, getting beat on a regular basis. How, how could a church thrive in that kind of environment? The answer, churches thrive not based on circumstances, but based on their connection with Christ. They are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem right now that a lot of American Christians are facing right now is we don't get this. What's happened is that we actually see the church more as a human-centered organization rather than a God-centered, divine called out, established group of people. So what this looks like is that churches, and they kind of function this way. They're like a human organization. They are conducted and created by human beings to meet human needs. We use human ingenuity. And it's not actually even uncommon to even go to like a leadership conference. And it's almost as if your church is a business. And your job is to keep your consumers happy. Find out what makes them tick what they want and that's it's like it's all about you and what you want all right that's just we're we're just marketing something and we hope you're buying friends that's not a church you can call it you that if you want the church is about god it's about those who are in god the father and the lord jesus christ 
God does not exist for the sake of the church. The church exists for the sake of God, for his worship, for his praise, and the furthering of his work. And so you need to understand, the church is about what God is doing. It's about in him, for him, through him, what he is accomplishing. You don't want to miss the miracle of the church. But that's what's happening. We actually just kind of gloss over like a verse one. But in actuality, this is the heartbeat of what God is doing. See, if you don't understand this fundamental point, that the church lives for the glory of God and His exaltation, then let me just tell you how this all works out. For instance, a worship service. Okay, a worship service actually becomes, what do you get out of it? What kind of feelings may be evoked? Does it make me happy? Do I like the song selection? Do I like the style? Rather than, am I here to glorify and praise God? Man-centered, human-centered, God-centered. Or, let's say, uh, like the ministries in the church. Right now, the trend is, what can a church do for you? What, are, what can you do to meet my needs and to make me happy? When in actuality, the church is about God. And it's about an opportunity for you to serve Him. It's not primarily about you being happy. It's about you glorifying and honoring God, which I assure you, will bring you great joy. And then, uh, let me give you just another. What's going to happen is, instead of gathering together to worship and exalt a living God on the the first day of the week, which has been the practice of Christians really since the resurrection, all of a sudden the idea of a worship service, this is how it gets processed. It is an intrusion on my weekend. I will decide if I'm going to bother with going to church. Because after all, I'm in control, and it's all about me. It is a very anthropocentric model of how we go about life, when reality is, if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you know Christ, you are called to a God-centered life, and that's what He is seeking to bring about. This is the church. And God says, this is how you thrive. It is the church, it's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and He says, grace to you and peace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is like, you can think of it this way, the riches that come from our relationship with Christ. Grace comes from God, allows you to thrive in whatever circumstances you are in, and he says, and peace. Peace isn't just the absence of trouble. It's the presence of God. It's shalom in the midst of your trials. So if you're going to find a healthy, thriving church, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find mission-minded workers. Folks that like, get it, and they're involved in the involved in the game. Not just sitting on the benches like, hey, I'll, I'll cheer for a few folks and hope they get it right, and I'll leave and go someplace else if I don't quite make me real happy. And then the second, you've got to have folks that are rooted in the rich soil of knowing God. But let me give you the third. You find this in verses 2 through 4. You have to have fruit-bearing disciples. See, there are a lot of parallels to a garden. You ever have people that say, like, yeah, I don't really like vegetables? And, and maybe you might be one of them. I think that you might say that you don't like vegetables because you've maybe never had really fresh vegetables. Okay? So, like, for instance, on a spectrum, you could have uh, cream corn in a can. Okay? And on the other hand, you've got corn that was just picked. And it's been barbecued for an hour and 15 minutes in those coals, and then you dip it in butter. That, my friends, is awesome. It is so good. Okay? 
And if you've been just eating cream corn, they're terrible. Friends, you need to have fresh vegetables because they are appealing. They are awesome. Wasn't a huge fan of the frozen beans. You get fresh beans from the garden. You can't eat enough of them. They're awesome. Friends, what God does in the life of his people is he bears fruit. And it is attractive. And what he is going to highlight in verses uh, 2 through 4 is the kind of fruit that God is bearing. And look what he says, verse 2. Paul says, you know what? We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in my prayers. And our prayers, when we're praying, I want you to know something. We give thanks to God for you. I want, I want you to stop right now. There is a lot of intentionality by what Paul is writing. You saw that in verse 1? You see it in verse 2. This gives us real insight into Paul's prayer life. I think of you. I pray for you. That is a great pattern. When God brings someone to mind, especially if it's someone like kind of out of the ordinary, always use that as a cue. I'm supposed to be praying for this individual. About a week ago, uh, I got together with a guy who's in our church, and he said, I don't know how you're going to take this. Uh, it might be a little strange, but uh, on Monday night, I woke up, and I was thinking about you, and I just started to pray for you. I'm like, I was very humbled by that. But that tells me here's a guy who gets it. God brings to mind, I, I pray. I talk to God about this individual. I lift them up. I ask that they be strong in Christ, that they're going to be encouraged. They're going to walk and live by faith. And this is what Paul's doing. And notice what he says, I thank God always for all of you. If you were a person in the church at Thessalonica and you got this letter, how would you feel about that? Whoa, he's thanking God for me? That would be pretty cool. That's, that would be so affirming in your life. Let me tell you something. You can do this. There are people in your life that if they knew that you thank God for them, it would be a game changer. Try it. Does your spouse, have they ever heard you say, I thank God for you? Have you ever prayed with them and just, hey, I thank you for her or him? How about your kids? No. Now, here, this is really cool. If you ever have your kids thank God for you, okay? Now, some of you are like, what are you talking about? And you might have to pull out your phone and say, hey, did you say that again? I need to record that, right? Whoa, and then you play that like 150 times, right? But it is powerful, right? It, it's so affirming. It's like, man, you mean something to me. You're important. And that's what Paul is saying. We give thanks to God always for all of you. It changes everything, this attitude of gratitude. And he's modeling the importance of prayer. Even how Paul ends this letter, he says in verse 25 in chapter 5, Brethren, pray for us. Would you pray for us? Because prayer is how God accomplishes his work. He involves us in the work he's doing when we pray. And Paul understands this, and he wants them to understand. He says, I want to begin this letter by saying this. I thank God for you every time I think of you, and I am praying for you. You know, and this is awesome. Why is he so thankful? He is so thankful because in verse 3, you find out that there's faith and love and hope that are being manifested in this church that is going through a lot of hard times in a very difficult situation. And you're like, how do, how do you see faith, hope, love? How, how do you see that? I mean, they're immaterial. You can't like, oh, there's faith over here and... Oh, look at this. There's love and there's hope. Can you see? No. They're immaterial. You can't see them. 
No, you, you're just right. You can't see them. They're material, but they are manifested in very definite ways, very physical ways, very tangible ways. It's kind of like the wind. How many of you think you can see the wind? Don't put your hand up, okay? Because you, you can't. You can't see the wind, can you? But you certainly see the effects of the wind, don't you? You see leaves blowing and dust and trees swaying and flags waving. You see the effects of the wind, but you don't see the wind itself. Friends, that's like faith and love and hope. These are the work of God, but they are manifested in ways that are very evident. And that's exactly what Paul is so thankful for. In verse 3, he's going to just identify these three characteristics of a healthy, fruit-bearing disciples. And first of all, he says they got a faith that works. Look at verse 3. We are constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, that you believe and your belief leads you to engage and do the work. Do something because you believe. So like James said in James 2.26, faith without works is, okay, for the few folks that mumbled that, they said dead. Your faith without works is dead. If you say, oh, I'm a person of great faith, but it has no bearing on your behavior, it doesn't change anything about you, nor do you do anything because of your faith, you might want to check again. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, I think it's verse 5, examine yourself to make sure you're even in the faith. Because it's got to be manifested somewhere. You don't work or earn your salvation, but when you believe in Jesus, fundamentally you start behaving and changing and living differently. Martin Luther said it this way, It is impossible to separate works from faith. Yea, just as impossible as to separate burning and shining from fire. Right? you got fire. It's going to have some heat, and it's going to have some light. Think of it this way. Faith is like a muscle. And it goes stronger and stronger with you. Okay, so I know you've seen this picture. I don't, I know there's some confusion. No, that is not me up there. Okay, so, all right, just to be clear. But you know how your muscles get stronger? You exercise them. They, they break down, but they build up and they get stronger. That's how it works with faith. We exercise faith. We believe in God and our belief in God influences our behavior. We take steps of growth. And when you see different people, men and women, some of our students that have significant faith, you know where that comes from? It's been built up over time. They find that what's going to make this work isn't our ingenuity and our skills. What makes this work is that God is in our midst and we're trusting Him. We have a faith that works. And that's exactly what this church had. Anything you do because of your faith in Christ, any engagement with your kids, any ministry that you do with your church, whether you're working with children, youth, uh, helping with a fellowship family, anytime you share or do something for your neighbor, anytime you engage someone at work because of your faith in Christ, it is a work of faith. It is a manifestation that you believe. And Paul says, you know what? We are rejoicing constantly. Why? We're bearing in mind your work of faith. Let me give you something else about a fruit-bearing disciple that they were so excited for. He also says, and your labor of love. You have a love that labors, that you actually give yourself. Interesting word, labor, here. It is the word used to labor, to give yourself to a point of exhaustion. And that's how it works. Love here, agapao, agape love. That's the kind of love 
that actually does something for the best interest of that individual. And when you love somebody, you will give yourself for them. And loving people sometimes is hard work. Because we've become so anthropocentric, so man-centered, so self-centered, what happens is we only will love the people that make us feel good. Isn't that weird? I'm going to love you because you make me feel good about myself. And we see it that way. But actually, we give ourselves because God's at work in our midst. And we love and will even labor. That means at times, we're going to love the people that are hard to love. That requires you to break out of your comfort zone and to engage. And where is this supposed to take place? It's supposed to take place with your family. It's supposed to take place in your church. It is a labor of love. And Paul says we see it. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you, what? John 13, 35, if you love one another. You love, you engage, you're a part of a body. That's being expressed. Friends, that is a manifestation of Christ at work in your midst. You are thriving in good soil. That is a fruit that remains. And then finally, notice what else he says in verse 3. And you have a steadfastness of hope. They have a hope that is steadfast. We use the word hope as in like wishful thinking. The Bible, when it refers to hope, refers to a sure confidence. We are confident. And their confidence was not in their abilities or their circumstances. Their confidence was in God specifically in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only was he at work in their midst, but it's really interesting, their confidence was that he was coming back. When you read this letter, 1 Thessalonians, did you notice how every chapter ends? Every chapter ends with a reference to the coming of Jesus. He promised he's going to return. We looked at it last week. And they're looking for him. They're living in him. They have a hope that is steadfast. Some of you might be familiar with a uh, Victorian scientist by the name of Michael Faraday, uh, probably one of the greatest scientists of all time. And this is a fascinating man, had a lot of discoveries. And one of the things that's really interesting about him is that he was a very outspoken Christian. He was not ashamed of his faith. In fact, Faraday found no conflict between his faith in Christ and his activities as a scientist and a philosopher. And really what he saw is like, like, when I am studying nature, he saw it like the book of nature, and I'm discovering God's laws of how the world runs as I'm studying nature. And he equated it to the exact same way he found God's laws when he studied the Word. And he saw no separation between the two. There was just this strong sense of unity. This guy preached on Sundays. He was very outspoken in it for his faith. But he was also brilliant. And he saw the two working together. When Michael Faraday was on his deathbed in 1867, one of his friends comes by, visits him, and chides him, throws out this. So, where are your speculations now, Michael? And this is how Michael Faraday responded. Speculations? I have none. I am resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. He quoted 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Friends, that's what it means to be steadfast in hope. It's our hope in God and Christ that no matter how hard life is, and we may be down on all fours, and we may not have much to give, but it's through the power of Christ and our hope in him, we get up and we keep moving forward. 
that's what's going on in this church. And notice what he says in verse 4, or verse 3, excuse me. This steadfastness of hope, it's in the presence of our God and Father. Not in you and your circumstances, in God and our Father. And then he just wraps up this introduction in verse 4 when he says this. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Knowing all of you, brethren. They may have come from very different backgrounds, Jewish, pagan, Greek, Gentile, but they're all brethren. They're all family members in Christ. And he says, you're dearly loved by God, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. That word choice, Greek word is ekloge. And it, it has the idea of God's selection, or we would use maybe the word election. And that, that doctrine of election is God's choice of an individual or group for a specific purpose or unity. And as you read the scriptures, you see, really, it is God who is the one who actually brings about salvation. It's not something that we earn. We are actually called, selected, you could even use the word elected, to not only know Christ, but to represent him. He's marked us out. He's called us, like Ephesians 1, 4, he says, even before the foundation of the world, what? He chose us in him. That's mind-blowing. But that's how God works. And if you read the Bible, you can't miss it. This gets started all the way in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is selected by God, what? To fulfill, I'm going to put my promises and I'm going to fulfill them in you. And that's what we see here. Just like Jesus said in John 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. I chose you that you would bear much fruit and that your fruit would remain. Now, it's really interesting. The same Bible that teaches that God is the one who sovereignly chooses also strongly emphasizes that you and I are responsible. There is human responsibility. You and I must respond to what God is doing. We have to exercise faith. And that's what he's, he's emphasizing here is that I've, I've told you what I see you doing. You've got your work of faith. You've got your labor of love. You've got your steadfastness of hope. Verse 4 is what God is doing. Now, how could Paul be so certain that God had chosen these people? You see that? His choice of you? Well, simply this. He saw their changed lives. Think of it this way. Those whom God chooses, he changes. If you really, truly know Christ, you see changes and growth starting to take place in your life. Of course, we're all imperfect. We've got a perfect Savior. We're very sinful. Even after we've trusted Christ, we've got some issues, right? But God, whom he chooses, he also changes. And this is being manifested in this church. And friends, this is what we desire in our church. We want to be a church that thrives. And just like our vision statement, it's very simple. It's four words. Growing deep, reaching out. Just like a church grows, just like a tree grows deep, its roots sink deep into God as a good soil of knowing God and His Word. As it draws nutrients, its shape, its character is developed. It shows up, God shows up in, in their relationships and in how they go about their ministry and their careers and their work. Friends, this is what a healthy church looks like. And you can always remember this, that the health of a church is determined by the spiritual health of its people. So let me just ask you this. Could you ask God, just, just this question, God, how can you working through me 
Help me take the next step of faith. What is it that God is calling me to do now? The next step of faith. You have to just trust Him. Related to that is asking God, how can you working through me help me take this next step of demonstrating love? Who is it in your life that you need to labor in love for? And finally, where is it in your life that you need to be resting in hope? If your world is kind of coming unraveled in different areas, maybe completely, where do you need to take a next step of just resting in His hope? It's interesting, they continued to do archaeological digs in Thessalonica, and uh, they have actually found a first century graveyard, and they're slowly excavating it. And on one of these pagan tombs, the person that they, they've excavated and they've got this tombstone, it just had two words. No hope. And friends, that's your life and my life apart from Christ. No hope. But in this city where people are dying with no hope is a church that has a faith that works, it has a love that labors, and it has a hope that is steadfast, and that is found in Christ. Because Jesus changes everything. The answers to our fundamental problems rest and reside in Him. Friends, He is the glorious one, He's our hope, and He is our future. And friends, these are the qualities of a thriving church. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing introduction to this letter. These words that you've had penned by the Apostle Paul, they give us great insight as to what a thriving church looks like. Father, that is our desire. We want fellowship to be everything that you've intended us to be which means that we understand that you are at work in our midst and we want to be responsive to your will and to your ways. And for the person who has come here today who has never trusted in Christ, and they are here with no hope right now, now that you have their full attention, will they just pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and sin, and I believe in Jesus. I believe that he paid for my sins on the cross and that he is alive because he's resurrected. And I ask that you might be the Lord of my life, and I will follow him all my days. So, Lord, thank you for your goodness and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.